0: go down every week in your soul. Amen. Praise God. Now, turn with me, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 5, and we'll be in just one verse in chapter 5, and probably just one verse in chapter 6 for this message tonight. Now, let me say, after the program, we're going to be doing a lot of sharing, and we're going to roll it off fast, so try to stick with us if you can. We sure appreciate you and all of you that take the time to tune in and uh, we're going to have a lot more of this variety uh, going on into the future and a lot of young guys coming up, Um, I'm even going to be having some of them speak for us sometimes and it'll just be a real blessing. One of my my heart's desires is to allow people to take a mantle from off of my life, now I leave all that up to the Lord, I don't know what my mantle is necessarily. But I want to be available. I want to be available for the young generation today. In case Jesus doesn't return in my lifetime, I believe he will. But in case he doesn't, uh, I will go home to be with the Lord in heaven. I'll go the death route, the way of all the earth, if the rapture doesn't take place. But this world would go on. And there will be a generation of people here. And church, we need to teach them what we have learned through our lives of walking with Jesus. It's just not good enough to take them to church. I mean, that's a a great start. First of all, you need to be at church, and secondly, you need to take your kids to church, absolutely. But um, you have to model it for them in everyday life and everyday life situations. And uh, we could all use improvement in the way that we do that, every single one of us. And so these are the things I take to the Lord in prayer And I'm asking him to do in my life. And my closest friends, I'll be honest with you, my closest friends are the ones that God's put in my life and made them excited about the vision of Acts 26, 18 ministries. Because I know that their hearts and spirits are open to receive. And I can just pour in, pour in, pour in. And we do that in a variety of ways. And so be praying along those lines when you think of us. And pray for us as we go forward in some new directions, yes, absolutely. But we're not giving up any of the old directions. We're just going to keep going in every way we possibly can until Jesus comes back. So have you found Romans chapter 5 yet? Romans chapter 5. Angie and I are going to teach a lot of, or at least the plan is, to teach a lot of Romans 6 together. But for this message tonight... I actually want to share some great Puritan material with you uh, in the body of this message. And I want to um, make a statement, point to a fact, with the balance of my time here tonight. And here is the statement. The statement is, sin is still the problem. It is the problem sin is. It is the problem of the sinner and the saint alike. Sin is the problem that the unbeliever has, and sin is the problem that the believer has. The believer's problem is not psychological, it's not low self-esteem, it's not financial, it's not uh, blessing-wise, If you believe the book, you'll read in Ephesians 1 verse 3 that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The the scripture tells us the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want because he leads me into green pastures and beside still waters that are quiet and restful for my soul. And so my problem is to live for Jesus and to see sin defeated in my life. And in the course of this little series that we're going to do, we're going to talk about the sin nature. Everybody has one. The sin nature is not done away with when you are born again. You do become a partaker of the divine nature, but you still have a sin nature. We're going to show that to you from Romans 6, 7, and 8. Also, uh, sin is the problem, of course, of the unbeliever, and the biggest sin that they are having a problem with is the sin of rejecting Christ. And so we pray for people. We pray for their hearts. We pray for their, their, their hearts to be open to receive the message of Christ. But you have to understand in this modern age, and especially in this new movement that's called the Grace Revolution, and there's a lot of people preaching it, but there's some basic problems with the Grace Revolution that's being preached today by many preachers. And one problem is they act like and they preach like sin is no longer bad. Their attitude seems to be, well, God knows we're all going to sin a little bit. And that is true. We are all going to sin as long as we're in the body. There are going to be times that we're going to fall short and we're going to fail the Lord. We don't want to do it, but it is inevitable. But they act like, oh, don't worry about it. It's no big deal because grace covers it. That's false doctrine, friend. Paul never taught that in the New Testament. We're going to look at that tonight, as this is the point I'm trying to make with this message. Another big problem with the Grace Revolution, as is being taught on major Christian networks by very popular pastors. I've even heard him say, as a Christian, you don't have to confess your sins anymore, because they're automatically forgiven. Well, First John 1 and 9 was written to Christians, and the Bible says if we sin, if we confess our sins, then Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's just one verse of many we could look at that proves to you that yes, as a Christian, when you sin and when you fail the Lord, you need to confess it to the Lord. Another problem with that grace revolution teaching, as is being taught today in many Christian circles, is they they preach and teach that sin, if anybody preaches and it hits on a sin in your life, that is condemnation from the devil, and you're not to put yourself under condemnation. I'm sorry, But I hate to disagree with you. You've probably never read the book of Revelation, then, have you? When Jesus is standing outside of the door of the church, knocking, trying to get in, and he reproves them for their sin. So, no, sin is not... Now, we could preach in such a way that would condemn people, but we don't do that. We preach with the hopes of facilitating the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And ladies and gentlemen, quite frankly, that's what's missing from most of our churches today. Because people have an expectation. We heard Brother Mario touch on it earlier. People put an expectation out there. If I come to your church, you better make me feel good, and you better not make me feel bad about myself, and don't ever tell me that I'm doing something wrong. I know Christians like that. But you see, my friends, that is not New Testament Christianity. That is not the New Testament message of grace, and that's what we're going to look at. Another problem with this grace revolution is they look at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, as water baptism, when it quite plainly says, that we are buried with him by baptism into his death. We are baptized into Jesus Christ. This has nothing to do with water baptism. Nothing. And I'll go further and I'll, I'll go ahead and further and ruffle some feathers and rock the boat a little bit. You don't have to be baptized in water to be saved. Now we believe that if you're a normal person and you give your heart to Christ Jesus, you will want to be baptized in water. What is water baptism? In a nutshell, it is a signification to the world out there that you have died with Christ, you have been buried in his likeness, and you have been risen with him again, when he was risen from the dead. It is a spiritual symbol of something that has taken place in your life when you got born again. But what Paul is talking about in Romans 6 chapters, well, the whole book, he's never talking. Get this, write this down. He is never talking in Romans 6 about water baptism ever, not one time. He is talking about you and I being baptized into Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? I'll start off slow, and I'll just tell you this for tonight, and we'll get back on point. It means that when Christ died, I died with him in the mind of God. It means that when Christ was buried, I was buried with him, and all my sins were put into that tomb also. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And it means that when he was raised from the dead, I was raised with him to walk in newness of life. And that is where the Christian's power source for living is to come from. And we're going to talk about this a great deal, okay, in the the balance of this series. But for tonight, let's stay on point. And let's talk about this concept, this statement, that sin is still the problem. And Jesus is still the answer to the problem of sin. Let's read in Romans chapter 5. Let's, let's start in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. What shall we say then? Notice he's asking a question. That means that Romans 6.1 is referring to back to Romans 5.20. Now listen to Romans 5.20. Moreover, the law entered, that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin reigned, hath reigned unto death, even so grace might reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So what shall we say then? Because that's true. Because the the reason that God gave the law of Moses was to show you and I that we couldn't keep it. And that we could never earn our salvation or earn our righteousness by keeping the law. Because God gave that, that sin might abound. In other words, it condemned the entire human race except those who would believe by faith. And I have a message that I just finished recording in a teaching kind of a setting where we look at this from a little different angle. And I'll get to some of that in just a moment. But here we are. The law of Moses literally condemned the entire human race because nobody, nobody except Jesus Christ has ever kept the law. Okay? So how then did the Old Testament patriarchs get saved? Well, they got saved by faith, the same way we have to get saved today. They didn't get. They didn't get saved by keeping the law, because the law can't save anyone. They got saved by faith, by looking forward off into the future, by faith to see the promise that God made to Abraham that He would provide Himself a lamb. Oh, hallelujah! And they believed it, and it was counted to them for righteousness. And when they died. They were still taken to the lower parts of the earth, to the paradise compartment of hell. Abraham's bosom. And right across the the script, Jesus taught this. This is not something funny. Jesus said that the beggar was in Abraham's bosom and he looked across the great gulf and he saw the fires of hell. And then when Jesus was in the tomb, he went down to Abraham's bosom. And he led captivity captive. That means they received him as the lamb. And he took them to heaven. But before that, they were in Abraham's bosom. Now, Satan couldn't punish them. And he couldn't torment them. But they could not go to heaven because their sin was still on the books. And the only thing that the offerings of the Old Testament and the sacrifices... What they did was cover sin. They couldn't wash it away. They covered it. And it was covered for another year. And then they had to do it again. And there were some that were even more frequently than that. And it was an act of faith because what God was doing through the law and through the ceremony and through the priesthood and through the tabernacle and all of that God was painting Israel a picture so that they would recognize their Messiah, and they missed it. Somebody asked me the other day, What's going to happen to the Jews in the rapture? Here was my answer If the Jew has accepted Jesus Christ as his Messiah, he's going to go in the rapture, and if he hasn't, he's going to go through the great tribulation. Because God doesn't have two different plans. One for the Jew and one for everybody else. Salvation is only through the blood of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that taketh away the sin of the world. And so every single Jewish person needs to hear the gospel and needs to receive Christ as Savior. And I deal with that much more in the teaching that I just did. And it's really that's what it's really called, is God doesn't have... Uh, uh, God doesn't have another way for the Jews to be saved. It's the same as you and I have to have to be saved. But Paul said here, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he says in verse 2 of Romans chapter 6, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer in it or therein? In the King James translation of the Bible. And what so many people have bought into today, this starts from the very earliest time that you go to school, all the way through some people's lives, they're taught this. Humans are basically good. I'm going to ask you, is that true? If you say, preacher, yes, that's true, then you do not have a Christian worldview. People are not basically good. The Bible tells us that people are fallen. People are basically evil and wicked. And they have to be born again and receive a new nature. I told you a little while ago, we're not going to get into it anymore tonight. Even though you have a new nature, you still have to do battle against the sinful nature as long as you live in the flesh. Because this thing has progressed from so many thousands of years of rebellion against God that now we are so far out of Eden. We are so far from that moment when Adam partook of that fruit. We are so far that sin is ingrained in each one of us. And if you don't believe it, you just put like three kids together in a sandbox and one bucket. And you will see the sin nature in operation before too very long. This is the only time in human history, the day and age that we're living right now, where this liberal idea that mankind is basically good. This is the only time it's ever been propagated. I want to share with you some writings of one of my favorite Puritan writings. And uh, most of you know that I love to study from the Puritans. And my, my family heritage was steeped in Puritan theology, and Puritan teaching. And not all of it's great theology, but most of it is. There are some things I believe we've gotten more light on as the years have gone by than what they maybe had. But When it comes to living for the Lord, <clears throat> and when it comes to dealing with our hearts and our attitudes, and just going all out for Jesus, you can't beat Puritan literature for teaching us the depths of devotion to God. One of my favorite writers was a Scottish preacher named Horatius, or Horatius, Bonar. And in his book, The Everlasting Righteousness, How Shall Man Be Just With God, I want to read just a few paragraphs. I'm going to try to put as much into this as I possibly can because this is so important. And I pray right now that everyone under the sound of my voice will catch the import of what Pastor Bonar was trying to say. I'm going to start quoting him now, and if I digress from the quotation, I will let you know, and then I'll pick back up with it again. Horatius Bonar, here's what he said. May I then draw near to God and not die? May I draw near and live? May I come to him who hateth sin, and yet find that the sin which he hateth is no barrier to my coming? No reason for my being shut out from his presence as an unclean thing? May I renew my lost fellowship with him who made me and made me for himself? May I worship in his holy place with safety to myself and without dishonor to him? These are the questions with which God has dealt and dealt with so as to ensure a blessed answer to them all, an answer which will satisfy our own troubled consciences as well as the holy law of God, his answer is final and it is effectual. He will give no other, nor will he deal with these questions in any other way than he has done. Now, I want to stop right there and digress off that a moment. Do you see what Brother Bonar is saying? He's asking how any of us who are wicked and sinful human beings can enter into the presence of God without being smitten down dead. And he's saying that God has dealt with this issue. He said and he's dealt with it the only way he's ever going to deal with it. The answer is the cross of Christ. And there will never be another answer other than the cross of Christ. There will never be another way for men to be at peace with God and to dwell in His presence for all of eternity other than the cross of Christ. Let's go back to Bonar's writing. He said this. He said, He has introduced them into His courts of law that there may be finally adjusted and out of these courts into which God has taken them, who can withdraw them? In other words, you and I can't say, well, sin ain't my problem. I'm doing the best I can. Let's see, how many excuses can I think of? Uh, After all, I'm not as bad as Joe Blow down the street. I'm not as bad as Susie over there. I'm doing my best. Life has hurt me. Christians have hurt me, preachers have hurt me, people have hurt me, 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 None of that is going to take the question that God has for our souls off the table, dear friends. And God has one answer to that question. Let's go back to Bonar's writing and listen. This is powerful stuff. Coming from a Puritan preacher, that our country of America and our twisted up church needs to hear today. Hello? We need to get back to the faith of the Bible, the faith of the Word of God, not what we want to dream up. Well, I'm just doing the best that I can. God knows I got problems. Now, God cares about you and He loves you and He wants to help you with your problems, okay? but it does nothing to change the eternal ramifications of what you do with Christ. Let's keep reading Horatius Barnard. What end would be served by such a withdrawal on our part? Would it make the settlement more easy, more pleasant, more sure? It would not. It would augment the uncertainty and make the perplexity absolutely hopeless. Yet the tendency of modern thought and modern theology is to refuse the judicial settlement of these questions. Let that sink in a moment. And to withdraw them from the courts into which God has introduced them. (laughs) <laughs> an extrajudicial—let me say it again—an extrajudicial adjustment is attempted. Man, declining to admit such a guilt as would bring him within the grasp of law, and refusing to acknowledge sin to be of such a nature as to require a criminal process in a solemn court. Now, did you hear that? Did you hear what the preacher said? Every one of us should be subjected to a criminal process based on the moral law and standards of God, and our excuses cannot withdraw that from the presence of the Almighty. Okay? See, sometimes people feel so inadequate and they're they're catching the hopelessness of their situation. Even Christians who are trapped in a bondage and they see the hopelessness of it. And so what they do, because they realize they are hopeless and they cannot change it without power from another world, they begin to make excuses to rationalize that maybe somehow they're going to make it. And we're going to get to that in a moment. There is a solution There is a way you can make it. It's by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's by cooperating with the Holy Spirit in your life. And you will make it. Not you can. You will. Because God has offered... This is the true meaning... Oh, glory to God. This is the true meaning of grace right here. He offers us grace in those areas that we mess up. Not in order that we might just ho-hum, casual attitude, keep messing up. But God has given us grace... For those areas that we fall down. We mess up. We don't want to do it. We hate sin. We don't want to sin. So God has offered us grace. If we'll place our faith in his son. But if we think we're basically good. That's the biggest stumbling block. To getting people to come. And place their faith in Christ. Let's go on reading with. Uh, Horatius Bonar's statement a little more. The history, so is, before I start reading that again and get into that, let's ask this question. Is mankind basically good? And the only reason that some people ever pray to God or ever think about God or look to God is when they get in trouble... And they go go to God, some of them even get mad at God, and they say, God, you know I'm doing the best I can. Why are you letting this happen to me? You know, you know, you know. Let me tell you the three most dangerous questions in the world, and I'm going to preach a message on this one of these days. Here they are. Are you ready? How could I? How could they? And how could God? Those are the three most dangerous questions in the world that causes a Christian or an unbeliever to feel sorry for themselves and have a pity party in their life and cry and complain and moan and groan all the time instead of going to the adjudicated answer that God has already provided. Because as long as you're walking around that mountain murmuring and complaining, as long as you're going out in the wilderness of despair, you will never reach a hand up to grab the answer that God has for you. And Christians are just as bad at it as unbelievers. Listen to this. You say man is good? The history of 6,000 years of evil has been lost on man. He refuses to read its awful lesson regarding sin and God's displeasure against the sinner which that history records. The flood of evil that has issued forth from one single sin, man has forgotten. The death, the darkness, the sorrow, the sickness, the tears, the weariness, the madness, the confusion, the bloodshed, the furious hatred between men. All of this has made earth little more than a suburb of hell. All of this is overlooked or misread, and man repels the thought that sin is a crime. How many times have you ever, I'll stop the quote right there for a moment, how many times have you ever said, oh, my problem, my mendacity, my little mistake. We, have, we are so far out of Eden, That the very definitions that God gave to the problem we have lost in the translation. We have forgotten the horror of sin. We have failed to recognize that earth is little more than a suburb of hell. And it was doomed to be such when Adam fell in the garden. And God has a redeemed people... Who are in this world but not of this world. And God has a redeemed people. Who are pilgrims and strangers upon the earth. And God has a redeemed people. Who will stand on the book. Not on their own faulty ideas. Of life and morality or anything else. The good God Almighty. Let's keep reading here. God hates sin with an infinite hate, and he, in his righteousness, must condemn and avenge sin. Horatius Bonar goes on to say, listen to this as I read this, from this great Puritan giant of faith. Again, it's Horatius Bonar in his book, The Everlasting Righteousness. Here's what he says. If sin is such a surface thing, such a trifle as man deem it, what is the significance of this long, sad story? I want to read that again. I want you to ponder that in the word of the Lord tonight. If sin is such a surface thing, such a trifle as men deem it, then what is the significance of this long, sad story? Do earth's 10,000 graveyards where human love lies buried tell no darker tale? Do the millions upon millions of broken hearts and heavy eyes say that sin is but a trifle? Does the moaning of the hospital or the carnage of the battlefield, the blood-stained sword and the death-dealing artillery proclaim to us that sin is a mere casualty and the human heart is really the seat of goodness after all? Does the earthquake, the volcano and the hurricane, the tempest speak nothing to us of sin's desperate evil? as man's aching head and empty heart and burdened spirit and shaded brow and weary brain and tottering limbs not utter in a voice articulate beyond mistake that sin is guilt and that guilt must be punished by the judge of all not as a mere violation of natural laws but as a breach of the eternal law, which admits no reversal, the Bible says, "The soul that sinneth, it shall die." The Bible says, "The strength of sin is the law." First Corinthians, chapter fifteen, verse fifty-six, and it's just exactly what we said from Romans five and Romans six here tonight as we read it to you. He who makes light of sin, this is Bonar again, must defend moral confusion and injustice. This is why I'm going to stop the quote and I'll come back to it in a minute. This is why we look at some of the foolish, crazy things that these liberals today are standing up and trying to defend. And we wonder how in the round world can people ever dream up that stupidity. I'll tell you how. It's because it comes directly from a wicked heart that is unregenerated and the sin nature taken over. And these people are just walking about as they please. In making decisions that seemeth right unto a man, but the end of that way is death. And until we open our spiritual hearts again to hear the gospel, the only message of hope, the only point and meaning to this long, sad story of the human race, until we once again begin to hear and receive the gospel, we will not be saved. We will not be revived. We will not be restored. We need to preach it the way the Bible gives it and not the way the denominational headquarters wants to put it out to keep numbers of people in the pews. I would rather have 12 people that come to a meeting of mine and hear the real gospel of Jesus Christ than to have 1,200 people sitting there pressuring me to make them feel good before I send them home. I like what Pastor Rod Parsley said a long time ago one time. He said, I believe we ought to put barbed wire around the altar and dare people to come to God. We don't have a hunger for the things of God. We only see it as it relates to the betterment of our lives. We do not understand that we have offended God. We don't understand... How sorry we have become. We don't understand what sin really is because we're too busy denying it. Talking about, I get so sick of these stupid preachers talking about how you don't have to confess your sins anymore. And anybody that tries to preach it to you about your sin, they're putting condemnation on you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but that's ridiculous. It's unbiblical. Holy Spirit of God will convict the Christian of sin just like He convicts people in the world. You say you want to have a revival in America? We need to get back to the book. I love that song by Brian Free. Maybe I'll play it later. In between announcements. It talks about if we want it like they had it, Like when Horatius Bonar was on the face of the earth and men would run to the altar in his services to give their heart to Jesus Christ. If we want it like they had it, we've got to do it like they did. And how many of us spend time in prayer and fasting and crying out to God because we have sinned and we have failed Him. And oh God, change our hearts by the blood and by the Holy Spirit. That's what it's going to take. Because a cry... Will he not refuse if it comes from the sincere heart? Let me get back into this quote or I won't get it done. I'm just about finished for tonight. The world, Horatius Bonar says, the world has grown old in sin and has now more than ever begun to trifle with it. Now you think about this. Bonar lived from 1808 to 1889. He was a true Scottish Puritan. And if he said that in between 1808 and 1889, how much more true is it today? What would he think if he turned on the news and he saw women fighting for the rights to murder their children before they're born? What, what do you think... Bonar and Wesley and Finney and so many others would say if he turned on the news and he's seen a society that had sunk so low that it would begin to huff paint cans to get a buzz to face life. I believe these men would cry to the top of their lungs, there is a hope for you. There is another solution for you. You don't need to be lost and you don't need to die and go to hell. Jesus died on the cross of Calvary to forgive you of your sins. And if you will turn to him and repent of sin, he will receive you and you can be born again and have a new power source for living. And when we get into the verses of Romans 6, 7, and 8, what we're going to see in Romans 6 is the believer's new power source for life and living. In Romans chapter 7, it is a parenthetical chapter. We're going to see the Apostle Paul, before he understood the cross, he tried to be a Christian by keeping the law, because that's all he knew. And in Romans 7, he says a lot of strange things like, and, and, and I know there are some study Bibles that will tell you, you know, that was Paul before he got saved. But no unsaved person says they hate sin, right? And, and, and Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am in Romans 7, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I'm telling you, as long as we live in the body, we've got an expiration date on it. And in order for me to face that last day, Not not necessarily the end of the world or the return of Christ, but my last day. Oh God, I have to be able to say, he's got my back. I know him in whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. The only way I can do that is through the cross of Christ. And then when we get back to Romans 8 and out of the parenthetical conversation of Romans 7, Romans 8 shows us exactly what Romans 6 is working. Romans 8 puts a heavy emphasis on the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost can only work in the heart and life of the Christian if their faith is in the blood of Jesus. Because God has limited his activity to that place. Remember I read in Bonar's writing, there will be no other course of action taken. Listen, listen to me please. You can crawl on your knees until they turn bloody. You can crawl up the steps of a Roman Catholic cathedral. You can give away all you have to the poor. You can can beat yourself with a cat of nine tails on the back. You've heard of that. It's called asceticism. None of it will bring you one inch closer to God. There is no other offer on the table. It's Christ and Him crucified or it's nothing. It's Christ and Him crucified or it's hell. It's Christ and Him crucified, or it's bondage. But no other answer, no other solution will be given. That's what the man of God said in the 1800s, Horatius Bonar. Let's see what else he says here as I wind this down. This world has grown old in sin, and has now more than ever begun to trifle with it, either as a necessity which cannot be cured, ...or a partial aberration from good order which will rectify itself before long. It is this tampering with evil... ...this refusal to see sin as God sees it... ...as the law declares it... ...and as the story of our race has revealed it... ...that has in all ages been the root of error... ...of wide departure from the faith... ...once delivered to the saints. Admit the evil of sin with all its eternal consequences. And you are shut up to a divine way of dealing with it. And that's where I'm going to leave off with this great quote for tonight. If you will admit the ravages of sin, then you will be given a divine remedy to deal with those ravages and to deal with that sin. And that is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The blood that He shed the blood that he shed on Calvary's cross. Let's look in Romans chapter 6. You say, well, I know, uh, you know, before I got saved, I, I came to a point where I realized that I believed that I needed Christ, but I'm a Christian now. And doesn't the Bible say I can do all things? It says I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. I can do nothing in and of my own power or ability or talent. I can do nothing that would be pleasing to God unless the Holy Spirit gives birth to it in me. And that happens when my faith is in the blood. And then the Holy Spirit begins to work in me. And then He begins to work through me. And that's the answer to the problem of sin in the life of a Christian. Look at Romans 6.6. 6. Knowing this, our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed. Now that word destroyed should have been rendered uh, rendered inoperative, made ineffective. In other words, the sin nature, and we're going to look at this further in the future, at the actual Greek words here, and they're always before the word sin in Romans 6, except for one time, I think. There is a definite article, ha martia, the sin. So if you were reading this from the original writing, Paul would have said that the body of ha, the, martia, the word used here for sin, meaning the sin nature, not acts of sin. You see, we cannot just modify our acts of sin. We have to shut the factory down that produces those acts. And that's what Romans chapter 6 deals with knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that the body of sin might be rendered inoperative, that the sin nature should be set aside. It's not dead. And God left it. For many reasons, God has left the sin nature in the believer. And one of the biggest ones is so that we don't get filled with pride and think that we can do this on our own. We've got to have him. Or if we don't have him, and we're not walking with Him like we should be through faith in the blood, then the sin nature comes roaring back to life in us. It should be laid aside that henceforth we should not serve sin. And finally, as we close, Romans 6.14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Now therein is the answer to our question does sin still matter, or does grace automatically take care of it? And we've read, we've, we've read the scripture, we've quoted from a great Puritan author who tells us in no uncertain terms that the sad story of the human race proves to us that sin is every man's lot until the power of Christ begins to work in their heart and life. And even then, there are moments where we will be taken up in sin. But he gives us grace not to excuse our sin, but to empower us to stop sinning. When I was low, as low as could be, when I had come to the end of myself, that's where I found Christ. Because as long as I thought I had the power within my hand, I exhausted myself trying to utilize what my thoughts were fixated on that I could do to free myself. There is no freedom in self. There is only freedom in the cross of Jesus Christ. And when you get to that understanding and to that place in your life, mercy will bring you out.